Welcome to Sunday Night Dinner, a podcast that cooks. I'm Suzanne Hancock. A Trappist-style beer. It's Chimay, strong ale. Mm -hmm. Classic Belgian. Classic Belgian. Let's crack it open and see. I didn't even open that. That just <laughs> missed my eye by an inch. Are you okay? <laughs> I'm shell shocked. Oh my god. Oh my god. Where did that go? I like to toast my almonds in a nonstick pan on top of the stove rather than in the oven. Just because of the number of times that I've burnt my nuts. Sorry. The number of times that my nuts have burnt um, in the oven. Not under a, a watchful eye. So, this is a... Are you getting medical treatment for that? <laughs> it's a cream. I'm going to eat one laser hot straight from the oven. You okay? Do you want some beer? Yeah, I do. Well, they certainly are nice and fluffy inside. If anyone ever thought that Sunday night dinner or even Belgium was harmless, let yourself be warned. It's dangerous being a chef and cooking mussels and fries, moules frites, is risky, even for highly experienced professionals. I guess my friend, Chef Greg Argent, should have been wearing protective eye gear when he opened that beer. Greg is the very first person I ever knew who went to cooking school. It was just after high school in Vancouver where we grew up, and after traveling for a while, Greg came home and went to school to learn how to be a chef. And since then, he's cooked in all kinds of amazing restaurants. The Wedgwood Hotel, he was part of the first gastro pub in Vancouver, the Irish Heather, Toronto's Rain and Luce, Crew Restaurant, Forte Bistro, and the East Ender. He's been on Iron Chef, he was on a reality cooking show called Made to Order for three seasons, and he's a kind and generous person. He works in Toronto now, and I went over to his house in the East End to talk Sunday night dinner and comfort food. I don't see him very much, but when I do, it's always a little like going home. The dish Greg chose to make is considered the national dish of Belgium. More than 60,000 tons of mussels are eaten in Belgium each year. That's a lot of mussels for a country with a tiny coastline, and it turns out almost every one of those mussels comes from somewhere else. Moulfrit became popular during the winter months when other seafood was scarce, and the black gold, as mussels are sometimes called, came to Belgian cities along canals from mussel-growing regions of the Netherlands. Like most things in Belgium, fries are served alongside the mussels. It's classic comfort food, and it has been for a long time. Greg sets out a dish that takes no time at all to make, and if comfort is what you want on a Sunday night, this is a great, easy way to find it. Greg's going to cook us through the final episode of this first season of Sunday Night Dinner. Stay tuned till the end for a taste of what's coming up in season two. So Greg, what does this recipe mean to you? When did you first have it? Uh, this is a recipe that I developed for a, a restaurant that I had a few years ago called Forte Bistro. 
uh, we had a number of mussel dishes on the menu, and this was one of my favorites that we did. I like to do it at home because it's a simple sort of one pot kind of dish, and uh, I plan to make some bread with it that doesn't involve proofing and like planning for hours and hours ahead of time. This is something that you just bang together in two minutes. You can use whatever's left over in your fridge. If you have some bacon, some cheese, some herbs, anything you want, you can throw into it. Okay, I'm just going to jump in here for a second to say that this bread totally blew my mind. It's two ingredients, and it's so easy, and it was absolutely delicious. You need self-rising flour and Greek yogurt. That's it. More on that to come. So, beer, mussels, marriage made in heaven, fresh bread, you can't go wrong, right? Normally the frites are served separately. This one is going to be tossed with the mussels and the cheese, so it's almost like a muscly poutine kind of thing. Uh, it's dirty, but it's delicious. And it is so delicious. I have to admit that I'm not a huge fan of poutine, and I usually don't go for mussels either, but this dish was kind of a revelation for me. I highly recommend it. So let's start with the mussels. We had two pounds of mussels, and Greg very thoroughly went through them all. Here he is. Okay, so you've brought me these beautiful PEI mussels. Uh, first thing I'm gonna do is give them a really good rinse and tap the shells. If they're open slightly, and when you tap them, if they don't close on their own, then you gotta discard those right away, because nothing will ruin your next couple days worse than a bad muscle. So I'm gonna give them a quick rinse, agitate them in the bowl, And for, for this reason as well, I, I, I'm often skeptical of ordering mussels when I go out for dinner, unless I know that it's a reputable restaurant, because not only do they sit in their own secreted waste, um, there can be a few open ones that the cook hasn't meticulously picked through. So you can avoid that by doing it yourself, or just know that you're eating at a reputable restaurant where they're going to take care. See, I'm finding a few open ones. It doesn't mean that they are improperly stored. They may have just deceased naturally. Um, if there's a beard on it, which will appear like a little bit of moss almost growing out of it, you want to pull that off as well because that's not pleasant to eat. And I'm going to rinse these a couple of times just to be sure. Greg rinsed them a few more times and I asked him if he has a favorite type of muscle. I sure do, actually. Um, I prefer West Coast mussels. Um, there's a few aquaculture farms that are marketing what they're calling honey mussels. And these things are about three times the size of your regular PEI mussel. They're just plump and meaty and delicious and they're golden hue or pink tinged. And when you're eating them, it's so satisfying. It's not like you're on an archaeological dig with all these small little mussels trying to get your morsels. It's like big, plump, meaty mussels. But these are delicious. PEI mussels, nothing wrong with them. I'm just going to let those soak for a few minutes. Um, I'll probably start sweating off some leeks. Now, I like to sweat them off really slowly uh, to the point, I, I call them melting leeks, to where they're meltingly tender, like a leek fondue. So we're not going to use the tough, dark green parts of the leek. Just cut them on an angle to get the most of them. And, of course, leeks are filled with dirt and grit, so we have to cut them in half and really carefully wash the insides, because a mouthful of sand will ruin the dish. 
So slicing them up. I use leeks because I love like the sort of garlicky nuances that they possess, rather than just a regular old onion. But we are going to also use shallots and garlic. And we have some speck somewhere. So this is our smoked bacon speck, dry smoked bacon. I'm just going to get a few strips of it and dice it up quite small, uh, render out what little fat is inside of it. And we're going to use that fat to saute the leeks or sweat them down as well. I'm going to put a little bit of butter in at the beginning as well. And by cooking the butter long and slow with these leeks, we're almost going to create a, a brown butter, which will have really sort of like a nutty, sweet, beautiful smell. It's going to go great with the Comte cheese that we have in the beer and the toasted almonds, of course. So have some unsalted butter and I guess it's about two tablespoons of butter and I'm doing this in a cast iron pot you can do it in any kind of frying pan but for the long slow cooking of the leeks that we're gonna do a nice heavy like enamel pot something heavy with a thick bottom that will be best just gonna turn that on adding our speck to the pot and while I'm doing things on the stove here I might as well toast off the almonds as well. You can toast the almonds in the oven if you'd like or you can do what Greg does which is to toast them on the stovetop so you can keep an eye on them. And let's see I'll wash the parsley so it's drying. Oh yes Another thing that I can get on right away, because we're going to make some frites to go with our moules, and we're going to oven bake them rather than uh, deep fry them, because I don't like to deep fry in my house, is to cut our potatoes and get them soaking in water. Um, it's hard to get a crispy oven fry, but any time that you can have them soaking in water to release some of the starches is going to improve your chances of having a, a crispier end product. And I'm not cutting these like traditional batons, like fries. I'm cutting them. I cut the potato in half and then sort of into half moons. So it's a lot of surface area to crisp up on the pan. And not a long skinny fry that's going to break because we're going to toss these fries inside with the mussels and the cheese and the beer. And we don't want our potatoes breaking all over the place. So yeah, just going to get that soaking in water. Like any soaking will help. But then the key is, after you've soaked it as well, you're going to have to dry that really well. Because any water that you carry on into your pan is going to uh, impede any crisping. Okay, our speck is sizzling, our butter is melted, and we'll be browning shortly. Now it's time to throw in leeks. Get them meltingly tender. So let's see, the quick bread we're going to make it's probably going to take about 20 minutes to bake. It's really, really fast. It takes no time to prep. Uh, these leeks are probably going to take a good 10 minutes to melt down. Um, our potatoes, they're going to take probably a half an hour anyway. So ideally I should get those potatoes in the oven right away. But I want them to soak for a little bit. So we're just going to slow things down a little bit. While Greg peeled two small shallots, I asked him what it was like being on Iron Chef. 
the iconic show where challengers battle iron chefs in a timed cooking competition. It's one of my all-time favorite cooking shows, and Greg was on in September 2007 as a sous chef to chef Guy Rubino. And what about when you were on Iron Chef? What was that like? Um, that was stressful. That's <laughs> all hell. Holy man, that hour is real. Like that is for real, and it goes by so fast, and um, it's so easy to forget something. It's unbelievable. You sort of get an idea of what will be in the basic pantry, and uh, that's about it. It is literally just before you go into Kitchen Stadium, they tell you what the ingredient was. And this was rabbit. This battle wow. rabbit. And they, it wasn't just rabbits, there were all of these purple looking wild hares as well too. I've never cooked with that as well too. So, I don't know. We didn't use the hares as it was. But we, uh, we did rabbit in many different applications, I think. Wow. We did like a Thai version, sort of an Indian version. Mm, Do you Chinese remember version. any of it? Is, it? is it just a blur? I remember it, sure. I have reoccurring nightmares. Of what? <laughs> of the clock ticking down. Yeah. I think all chefs have, have those kind of cooking nightmares where you just can't seem to get anything out of the kitchen and the bills keep piling up or the time keeps ticking down on you. Yeah, it's occupational hazard. I can't remember who the battle was. Who were you battling? Um, Michael Simon. Right, right. Yeah, and I think it was like his first battle or one of his first battles, so I think they had to make him look good. So I think that it was, I think it was stacked against us. I don't know if I could say this. They made me sign this uh, contract when I was there. It was a million dollar contract about what I could and couldn't say about the competition. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I could say that. <laughs> I may have just said too much. Let's get back to the muscles. So it's shallot and garlic time. Greg thinly sliced the shallots and put them in the pot with the leeks, and then he started to peel the garlic. And before the leeks give off too much moisture, I'm gonna add a little bit of garlic, just so that the garlic can get some color without boiling in the, in the liquids released from the leeks. Peeling garlic, that's one job that I hate the most in a kitchen. Isn't that the worst? Yeah, it really is. What's your favorite job? My favorite job? Hmm. Tasting? Nice. Good answer. Okay. Crack a little pepper in there. Oh, that's smelling so good. Okay, I'm gonna turn that down a little bit lower now. So I would love to make a crusty baguette, you know, if I had all day and I thought about it and it was my plan, then I would made my dough in the morning and I would have proofed it and punched it down and rolled it out and proofed it again. And, but that's not how Sundays happen. Sundays are usually impromptu around here. We'll be out, either have a craving for something or see something at a market or at the grocery store and think, oh, let's have that for dinner. So it's always got to be something that you can just make on a whim. Usually, in our house, it's a roast chicken on a Sunday. Nice. Often with no accoutrement, nothing at all, other than a bottle of Frank's Red Hot Sauce. And we'll just sit down and just attack the chicken in Frank's Red Hot Sauce. My wife likes milk with that, but I'll have a glass of wine. But that's typical. Sundays growing up was always about a roast. And it was always roast beef. And uh, there are always the same jokes that were... Uh, said every single time we had it, it would always be the beef is so rare, it must still have a pulse. 
and it had to be said every single time that we sat down to dinner to eat our roast beef. And yes, it would be rare. It'd be interesting. It'd be almost like three different beef dishes in one. You'd have like your Maillard effect roast tasting beef on the outside, then your medium steak. You'd eat that with like HP sauce, and then as you get towards the middle, it's almost like a carpaccio. And then you've got to either hit it with hot mustard or horseradish or something because it's something totally different. Um, for sides, there are some strange sides. Um, one of the stranger ones would be a can of plum tomatoes unceremoniously dumped out on a platter and placed in the middle of the table. And they would eat it with cracked pepper and salt. Um, I didn't care for it at all, of course. I thought that was a little bit strange. Uh, we would have sliced cucumber with white vinegar drizzled on it. Um, often Yorkshire pudding. What else would we have? Always a gravy. And then every meal would be finished off with a piece of bread where you sop up the juices on your plate and clean your plate, and uh, that would be it. If we're lucky, maybe ice cream after. Um, if it wasn't a roast, often it would be like a big pot of spaghetti bolognese. And yeah, we would strain the spaghetti and be left in the sink in the colander. You'd go help yourself with the amount of spaghetti and then go to the stove and collect your sauce. And we always liked a lot more sauce than spaghetti, so we would just be ladling the stuff on top of it. That's still one of my favorites, spaghetti bolognese. That's a standard here too. Like I think my freezer is filled with bolognese sauce. So I'm gonna turn on the oven now just to get it up. The quick bread wants to be cooked at about 400 degrees, but depending on how thick I make our buns, it might scorch on the bottom, so I'm gonna turn it down maybe 380. I'll just preheat that oven. See, I almost forgot the nuts, and there they are right on top of the stove in front of me. So, that's it. They are toasted enough, I'm gonna turn them off. Still leave them in the pan. And uh, where should we go from here? This is sweating down, our muscles are soaking, it's bread time. Okay, so I started to tell you, I think, that if I had the time, of course I would make a nice yeast risen bread, but this is a, a cheat, and it's an amazing cheat, and it allows you to use up any leftovers you want, put anything in this bread. It's so easy that you're, you're just gonna lose it. You're gonna lose it. I have this, self-rising flour. This is just regular flour that has baking powder and salt added to it. So, you never have to worry about how much baking powder you need to, to make this properly rise or leaven. It does it by itself, um, perfectly measured every time. So what are we gonna do? We're going to use, instead of like melted butter or oil, I'm just gonna use Greek yogurt. And if we do it equal parts by volume, it's always worked out in my experience. So let me see, if I use a half a cup, each of yogurt and of self-rising flour, that will give me two large buns. So let's make four. Let's do four. So to make four of these buns, I'm going to do one cup of flour, self-rising flour. And I'm not packing the flour. This is like loose. Loose. If it's too wet, I'll add some more flour. But we'll see. I think I have enough yogurt. I hope I have enough yogurt. If I didn't have enough yogurt, I would substitute some milk and some butter or something, but I have enough yogurt. And the funny thing is the yogurt, with the sour tang that it has, it almost is like reminiscent of a sourdough. How did you come up with this? Um, I didn't. It's, it's out there. It's a thing. But imagine that. You, don't, you want fresh big buns for dinner? Like two ingredients. But then you can add to it whatever you want. That's kind of extraordinary. I can't believe that. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a miracle cheat. I feel guilty. It's, it's so easy. I went to school to bake. <laughs> okay, so I'm not going to mix this too much. It's going to start activating right away because of the baking powder in there. 
So what I'm going to do is put in my ingredients that I'm going to put inside of our of our buns or our, our drop buns, I guess you could call them. So I'm going to chop up some herbs and put in there. Greg used thyme, chives, and rosemary, but you can use anything you want. Cheese, bacon, whatever's hanging around your fridge. The dough is loosely brought together. You don't want to overmix it. And then you'll line a baking sheet with parchment paper and shape the dough into even balls. If you don't have parchment paper, just spray it with some nonstick or, or lightly oil it. Just be careful if you oil your pan. That's also going to uh, increase like the browning on the bottom of it. So, what did we say we're making four of these? Yeah. One, two. Two. Roughly the same size. It'll leave them a little raggedy, you know, rustic looking. I'm flattening them slightly so they're no longer round. They're kind of like hockey pucks. Yeah, they're pretty much hockey pucks. So my oven's preheated. Banging it in. Let's pretend that the oven's preheated. I forgot to hit a switch. We're gonna wait a few minutes. <laughs> Hey, this is real Happens live cooking. The best of us, baby. <laughs> this is real. Has the industry, has the culinary industry changed dramatically since you first got into it? Oh, absolutely. It's changed so much. Um, the big fine dining restaurants are disappearing. Uh, you're getting a lot more smaller chef-driven, chef-owned places. Uh, unfortunately, they all seem to follow the same trends and chase each other around cooking the exact same thing. You'll have a wave of taco restaurants, you'll have a wave of restaurants cooking octopus, you'll have a wave of charcuterie restaurants, and it just changes year by year by year. Um, I miss the days of the fine dining, big expensive rooms, you know, special occasion restaurants that just don't seem to exist as much anymore. Well, there's always so much care taken with the ingredients and the production of it and the staff were all really well trained and it didn't matter how many tattoos they had on their arm, it mattered where they'd worked and what they'd learned. Okay, so let me just tidy up just for a second because I hate working in my own mess. Do you? Oh. The worst. It stresses you out and if you're busy in a restaurant and you're in a messy environment, you just can't help but sinking farther and farther into the mess. It's just the worst feeling. Stay clean. What's the, the best part of running or owning a restaurant? Um, I would say cooking what you want, but to an extent. Um, a lot of young chefs, of course, are guilty of cooking food that they want to cook or that they think is interesting and it may not be what the clients want. So that's a, a big mistake a lot of young chefs make. God knows I'm sure I've done it many times. Um, creating dishes, tasting dishes. I think the best thing is actually when you see a finished dish perfected the way you want it, sitting in the past, going out to a customer and you're so proud of it, and you're just thinking, wow, that's going to make somebody really happy. It's like gratification every time a plate goes up. I mean, that's the only reason you do it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a stressful, hot, long hours, weird hours, antisocial hours kind of job. So let's get back to the potatoes. They've been soaking for a while and Greg is going to try to remove as much water as possible before he adds olive oil, salt and pepper and puts them in the oven. So I drain them really well and you know what, I'm even going to toss a bit of bowl with some paper towel just to get rid of any extra moisture there. 
we're doing everything we can to make these oven fried potatoes or oven baked potatoes similar to a french fry with a crispy outside and a fluffy inside so we've rinsed out as much starch as we can I mean if we could have done this hours ago it would have been better but we're keeping it real Sunday night style olive oil, so cracked pepper, salt. What's your favorite comfort food, Greg? Spaghetti bolognese, yeah. Any kind of noodle, really. Yeah, Asian noodles, or like a bowl of ramen soup, or udon. So, give these a good toss. And let's lay them on parchment paper, on our tray. Make sure that they're in a single layer, because we want all that surface. Contact to brown them into the oven. And I'll watch them carefully. It's going on the lower rack because I'm going to put my breads on the upper rack. So I'm going to have to watch them a little carefully. Let's throw the breads in anyway. Because all this time they're, they're rising. So let's get them in the oven. So, oh, and the fact that you brought Comte. Oh my god, that's one of my favorite cheeses in the world. Good. This is a cheese that, if I'm serving a, a cheese course, a siete de fromage in the restaurant, and it has to be there, uh, along with Epoise, probably my favorite cheese in the world, but Comte would be probably a close second. Okay, that's lots. We want it nice and cheesy and decadent, those ones. At this point, Greg started working on the garnishes. He washed some Italian parsley, and then he zested a lemon. I have a microplane. It's a handy tool that everybody should have in their kitchen. It's for finely grating citrus zest. Strong stuff, you don't need very much. So I'll just have a wee bit there. And I'll slice the lemon so I'm ready to add the juice. I'm going to dice up a little bit more butter so we're ready to finish the sauce. Enrich it with some butter and swirl it around. Thicken the sauce a little bit. Parsley will be the very last minute. You don't want to cook it with the parsley and dull the flavors. You want it nice and bright and herbaceous. So just, just don't have to chop it too finely, but you don't want to eat a whole leaf anyway. Okay, so there we got our butter, our cheese, and our parsley and our lemon zest ready to finish our mussels, which are still soaking. Our potatoes are in the oven, our bread's in the oven. Our leeks now are soft and melting into the beautifully rendered speck or smoked bacon. Perfect. This seemed like a good time to ask Greg about one of his favorite eating experiences. First one that I think of would be uh, in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, late at night, it must have been two or three in the morning, I was at an outside restaurant and the specialty of the house was oyster omelet and frog leg porridge. Now the oyster omelet, wow. I, I don't eat like eggy dishes, but this was made with I think like some kind of sweet potato starch or something like that. It had big plump oysters in it, rolled up with like a, a sweet brown sauce, not sure what it was. And then a side would be the frog leg porridge. And I think it was like broken rice kernels and frog legs. Spicy as all get out, like crazy maddening spicy, but delicious. And sitting outside eating them with a great big ice cold tiger beer beside me and I just thought it was just amazing. 
Greg was in Malaysia filming a reality cooking show that he worked on for a few years. They liked him in Malaysia, but he revealed that that was not the case everywhere. Years ago, I worked on a TV show called Made to Order, and uh, apparently there was a sound test in England, and although it was being shown in something like 150 countries, England passed on it um, because they didn't like the sound of my voice. Aside from the fact that England didn't want him, I asked if he enjoyed the TV experience. I loved doing the TV show, but man, I got to travel to so many great, great places. Like, uh, I'd be flown to China to cook Japanese food in China in a French restaurant. And they'd usually fly me in like a couple of days before production and I'd land in the kitchen and I'd have to order the ingredients and put it all together, get all the prep done. Yeah, amazing. Uh, we did a Hong Kong a couple of times, a Moet and Shandong release party um, in the four seasons in Hong Kong. Um, like my fun food festival. Uh, World Gourmet Summit in uh, Kuala Lumpur, that was pretty amazing too. Yeah, filming it was fantastic. And it was, it was real, it was real stress. Man, you, you arrive there and, and if the ingredient is not what you think it is, then you've got to think fast on your feet and improvise. Yeah, it was always, always very exciting. Let's open the oven to see how the bread and the potatoes are doing. I've made these buns a little bit thick, so I might actually flip them maybe when I think they're halfway. Why not? I don't want them to deflate. Let me see if I can do this without manhandling them too much. It's good to me. Our meal is near to complete. So it's a quick, it's a pretty quick meal. And yeah. If, you know, the potatoes are the things that take the longest, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, minimal, minimal prep. Half an hour for the potatoes to cook. Please try to soak them if you can for you know a couple of hours beforehand if you want to have a nice crispy oven potato. And we use russet potatoes because they're perfect for this. They're not they're not too moist inside. They're not like the waxy types. Nice and they'll be nice and fluffy inside. Okay, everything's moving along. Let's turn up the heat in our cast iron pot. We're going to add our mussels once it gets up a little bit hotter. Muscles going in. Nice and hot, I'm gonna add some of the beer. I want it a little bit hotter, I wanna hear it really sizzle. And get to steaming really fast. You don't wanna slow cook mussels, you wanna fast cook them. Otherwise they'll shrink up and get tough. So we got it nice and hot, adding a good couple of glugs of beer. That's probably about a cup of beer, a cup and a half of beer. And I'm gonna put the lid on it. And I'll go back and see what's happening in our oven. We're about five minutes away on that. Mussels will be ready in about four minutes. And then um, we're gonna toss them with some of the cheese and the almonds and the parsley. And then we're going to build it in the bowl with the potatoes. Pour the sauce over it add a little bit more cheese, and then we're gonna put the bowls in the oven just to get a little bit more melty cheese on top of it. The mussels are uh, boiling. I'm just gonna uncover them and quickly add my lemon zest. And I'm just gonna lightly toss it around. Don't wanna agitate them too much. What happens is the mussel meat falls out of the shell, and then you just got a bowl full of empty shells, and you're looking for it and looking for it, and you know, maybe the other person has all the mussels at the bottom of their bowl and you've just got a bowl full of shells. 
That's not fair. Yeah. How do you know when the mussels are done? When they've all opened up. And if anything doesn't open up, you get rid of it. So, we're looking like we're just about there. So, now, what I'm going to do is add maybe half of my toasted almonds. They're going to get a little bit softer, they won't be as crunchy, so I'm going to save some crunchiness for garnish at the last minute. And let's add some parsley. And we're going to add half of the grated comp day. Turn off the heat right away, you don't want to cook with the cheese. A little squeeze of lemon. This is half a lemon and I'm squeezing all of that in. And now I've got uh, three tablespoons of butter. And let's just move that around a little bit. At this point, Greg tossed the crispy potatoes into the pot with the mussels, then ladled it all into bowls, poured the juice over top, and then finished with more parsley, cheese, and almonds. It looked amazing. Oh, it smells so good. Look at all those leeks and bacon. Oh yeah. Our buns are ready. I'm just gonna throw these bowls in for a second just to get that comte a little bit melted on top of them. You don't wanna do this too long at all because you don't want any dry heat on mussels. It's gonna cause them to shrink and dry out and get tough. So this is like really quick. It's gonna last some high heat for a second. So even though England rejected him, he hasn't totally rejected England. His current Sunday night tradition is to... I stand by the stove and from my little kitchen island I can see the TV. My wife will sit down and catch up on Coronation Street episodes while I cook and pretend not to be watching. Secretly I need to know what's happening in the secret little town of Weatherfield. I, I can pretend not to be paying attention, meanwhile I can be cooking dinner and watching nice. it. So that's, that's usually our tradition. There it is, that's, uh, that's a Sunday night dinner. I'm all caught up on Coronation Street. Life is good. Sunday night. Your time to catch up, recharge, rewind, look forward and look back. Your night to find some comfort, get a little rest, or challenge yourself to do something you've always wanted to do. I hope you've enjoyed the stories and memories of my guests this season, as well as their delicious recipes. Some have been easy, some more complicated, but I hope that in more than one episode, you felt inspired. This was the final episode of this first season, but stay tuned, we have lots of exciting new shows in the works. Over the next few weeks, I'll be meeting cooks across Canada and recording people from around the world. Come September, you'll hear from Canadian Senator Larry Campbell, the ex-mayor and coroner of Vancouver, and inspiration for the show Da Vinci's Inquest. Chef Jamie Kennedy will close next season with Christmas cakes. And between them, there will be tons of surprises, stories, insights and recipes from Chef Renee Belfoy of the Art Gallery of Ontario, Chef Chris Shafton from Crafty Kitchen in Kelowna, BC, Barbara Jo McIntosh of the iconic store in Vancouver, Books for Cooks, and lots more. Please don't forget to revisit shows from this first season and make those dishes you said you wanted to make. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to get updates along the way, and remember to go to the website to see some amazing photos of Greg's beautiful mussels and fries, as well as the drop bread. They're both so, so good. Sunday Night Dinner is produced by Suzanne Hancock. 
Music by J.J. Ibsen. Thanks so much to Chef Greg Argent for being a part of the show and for risking the dangers of Belgian beer corks, burnt almonds, and hot potatoes. Happy Sunday night dinner, everyone. <laughs>